Section 4 of the Afghan Wars, 1839-1842 and 1878-1880, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Frank J. Los Angeles. The Afghan Wars, 1839-1842 and 1878-1880, Part 2 by Archibald Forbes, Chapter 4, The December Storm, Part 1. The invader of Afghanistan may count as inevitable a national rising against him, but the Afghans are people so immersed in tribal quarrels and domestic blood feuds that the period of the outbreak is curiously uncertain. The British force, which placed Shah Shuja on the throne and supported him there, was in Afghanistan for more than two years before the waves of the national tempest rose around it. The national combination against Robert's occupation was breaking its strength against the Sherpa defenses, while as yet the Kabul force field had not been within sight of the capital for more than two months. There seems no relation between opportunity and the period of the inevitable outburst. If, in November 1841, the Kabul Sirdars had restrained themselves for a few days longer, two more regiments would have been following on Sale's track, and the British force in the cantonments would have been proportionally attenuated. Roberts might have been assailed with better chance of success when his force was dispersed between the Sai Sung camp, the Balahasar, and Sherper, than when concentrated in the strong defensive position against which the Afghans beat in vain. Perhaps the rising ripened faster in 1879 than in 1841, because in the former period, no Macnaughton fomented intrigues and scattered gold. Perhaps Shir Ali's military innovations may have instilled into the masses of his time some rough lessons in the art and practice of speedy mobilization. The crowning disgrace of 1842 was that a trained army of regular soldiers should have been annihilated by a few thousand hillmen, among whom there was no symptom either of real valor or of good leadership. To Roberts and his force attaches the credit of having defeated the persistent and desperate efforts of levies at least ten times superior in numbers, well-armed, far from undisciplined, courageous beyond all experience of Afghan nature, and under the guidance of a leader who had some conception of strategy and who certainly was no mean tactician. In the Afghan idiosyncrasy, there is a considerable strain of practical philosophy. The blood of the massacred mission was not dry when it was recognized in Kabul that stern retribution would inevitably follow. Well said the Afghans among themselves, what must be must be, for they are all fatalists. The seniors recalled the memory of the retribution Pollock exacted. How he came, destroyed Istalif, set a mark on Kabul by sending the great bazaar and fragments into the air, and then departed. This time, Istalif was not compromised. If Robert Sahib should be determined to blow up the charge hawk again, why, that infliction must be endured. It had been rebuilt after Pollock Sahib's engineers had worked their will on it. It could be rebuilt a second time when Robert Sahib should have turned his back on the city, as pray God and the prophet he might do with no more delay than Pollock Sahib had made out yonder on the longer plain. So after a trial of Robert's medal at Charisia, and finding the testing sample not quite to their taste, 
the Afghans fell into an attitude of expectancy and were mightily relieved by his proclamation read at the Balhassar Durbar of October 12th. After a reasonable amount of hanging and the exaction of the fine laid on the city, it was assumed that he would no doubt depart so as to get home to India before the winter snows should block the passes. But the expected did not happen. The British general established a British governor in Kabul who had a heavy hand and policed the place in a fashion that stirred a lurid fury in the bosoms of haughty sirdars who had been wont to do what seemed good in their own eyes. He engaged in the sacrilegious work of dismantling the Balahisar, the historic fortress of the nation, within the, whose walls were the royal palace and the residences of the principal nobles. Those were bitter things, but they could be borne if they were mere temporary inflictions, and if the hated Ferenkis would but take themselves away soon. But that hope was shattered by the proclamation of October 28th, when the abdication of the Emir was intimated and the British Raj in Afghanistan was announced. Yes, that pestilent Zabardasti, little general who would not follow the example of good old Pollock Sahib, and who had held Yakub Khan and sundry of his sirdars in close imprisonment in his camp, had now the insolence to proclaim himself virtually the emir of Afghanistan. Far from showing symptom of budging, he was sending out his governors into the provinces, he was gathering tribute in kind, and he had taken possession of Shir Ali's monumental cantonment, under the shadow of the Behramu Heights on which Afghan warriors of a past generation had slaughtered the Ferenghi soldiers as if they had been sheep. And it was the Ferenghi's general's cantonment now, which he was cunningly strengthening, as if he meant to make it his permanent fortress. Yakub Khan had gained little personal popularity during his brief and troubled reign, but he was an Afghan and a Mahomedan, and his deportation to India, followed shortly afterwards by that of his three ministers, intensified the rancor of his countrymen and co-religionists against the handful of presumptuous foreigners who arrogantly claimed to sway the destinies of Afghanistan. Church's La Femme is the keynote among Western peoples of an investigation into the origin of most troubles and strifes, the watchword of the student of the springs of great popular outbursts among eastern nations must be Cherchesles Proteris. The Peter, the hermit of Afghanistan, was the old Mushki Alum, the fanatic chief mullah of Guzni. This aged enthusiast went to and fro among the tribes, proclaiming the sacred duty of a jihad or religious war against the unbelieving invaders, stimulating the pious passions of the followers of the Prophet by fervent appeals, and joining the chiefs to merge their intestine strifes in the common universal effort to crush the foreign invaders of the Afghan style. This aged enthusiast went to and fro among the tribes, proclaiming the sacred duty of a jihad, or religious war against the unbelieving invaders, stimulating the pious passions of the followers of the Prophet by fervent appeals, enjoining the chiefs to merge their intestine strifes in the common universal effort to crush the foreign invaders of the Afghan soil. The female relatives of the abdicated emir fomented the rising by appeals to popular sympathy, and by the more practical argument of lavish distribution of treasure. The flame spread, tribesmen and disbanded soldiers sprang to arms, the banner of the prophet was unfurled, and the nation heaved with the impulse of fanaticism. Musa Khan, the boar heir of Yakub, was in the hands of the Mushki Alum, 
and the combination of fighting tribes found a competent leader in Muhammad John, a Warduk general of proved courage and capacity. The plan of campaign was comprehensive and well devised. The contingent from the country to the south of the capital, from Logor, Zermatt, and the Mangal and Jadran districts, was to seize that section of the Kabul Ridge extending from Cherishab northward to the cleft through which flows the Kabul River. The northern contingent from the Kohistan and Kodaman was to occupy the Azmai Heights and the hills further to the northwest, while the troops from the Maidan and Warduk territories, led by Mohammed John in person, were to come in from the westward across the Charda Valley, take possession of Kabul, and rally to their banners the disaffected population of the capital and the surrounding villages. The concentration of the three bodies affected, the capital and the ridge against which it leans occupied, the next step would be the investment of the Sherpa cantonment, preparatory to an assault upon it in force. The British general, through his spies, had information of those projects. To allow the projected concentration to be effected would involve serious disadvantages, and both experiments and temperament enjoined on Roberts the offensive. The Logar contingent was regarded as not of much account and might be headed back by a threat. Mohammed John's force, which was reckoned some 5,000 strong, needed to be handled with greater vigor. Mir Butcha and his Kohistanis were less formidable and might be dealt with incidentally. Roberts took a measure of wise precaution in telegraphing to Colonel Jenkins on the 7th December to march his guides, cavalry and infantry, from Jogdaluk to Shepper. On the 8th, General Macpherson was sent out toward the west with a column consisting of 1,300 bayonets, three squadrons, and eight guns. Following the Guzni Road across the Charda Valley, he was to march to Urgunde, in the vicinity of which place it was expected that he would find Muhammad John's levies, which he was to attack and drive backward in Maidan, taking care to prevent their retreat to the westward in the direction of Bamiyan. On the following day, General Baker marched out with a force made up of 900 infantrymen, two and a half squadrons, and four guns, with instructions to march southward toward the Logar Valley, deal with the tribal gathering there, then bend sharply in a southwesterly direction, and take up a position across the Guzni Road in the Maidan Valley on the line of retreat, which it was hoped that McPherson would succeed in enforcing on Mohammedan. In that case, the Afghan leader would find himself between two fires, and would be punished so severely as to render it unlikely that he would give further trouble. To afford time for Baker to reach the position assigned to him, McPherson remained halted during the 9th at Ashar, a village just beyond the debouche of the Nanuchev Pass, at the northwestern extremity of the Asmai Heights. On that day, a cavalry reconnaissance discovered that the Kohistani levies, in considerable strength, had already gathered about Karezmir, some 10 miles northwest of Kabul, and that masses of Afghans, presumably belonging to the force of Mohammed John, were moving northward in the Kohistan direction, apparently with the object of joining Mir Bucha's gathering at Karez. It was imperative that the latter should be dispersed before the junction could be effected, and Sir Frederick Roberts had no option but to order McPherson to alter his line of advance and move against the Kohistanis. Necessary as was this divergence from the original plan of operation, it had the effect of sending to wreck the combined movement from which so much was hoped, and of bringing about a very critical situation. If Lockhart's reconnaissance had been made a day earlier, McPherson might probably have utilized to good purpose by dispersing the Kohistanis, the day which, as it was, he spent halted at Ashar.
He might have accomplished that object equally well if instead of the cavalry reconnaissance made by Lockhart, McPherson himself had been instructed to vote the 9th to a reconnaissance in force in the direction of Karizmir. The country, being held unsuited for the action of wheeled artillery and cavalry, McPherson left his details of those arms at Ashar and marched on the morning of the 10th on Kerez with his infantry and mountain guns. As his troops crowned the Cirque Hotel, they saw before them an imposing spectacle. The whole terrain around Kerez swarmed with masses of armed tribesmen whose banners were flying on every hillock. Down in the Pugman Valley to the left rear were discerned bodies of the hostile contingent from the west, between which and the Kohistani's no junction had fortunately as yet been made. McPherson's dispositions were simple. His mountain guns shelled with effort the Kohistani tribesmen, and then he moved forward from the Cirque Hotel in three columns. His skirmishers drove back the forward stragglers, and then the main columns advancing at the double swept the disordered masses before them and forced them reordered into their entrenched position in front of the Karez village. There, the resistance was half-hearted. After a brief artillery preparation, the columns carried the position with a rush, and the Kohistanis were rooted with heavy loss. Mirbucha and his Kohistanis were well beaten, McPherson camped for the night near Karez. Baker had reached his assigned position in the Maidan Valley, and there seemed a fair prospect that the operation against Muhammad John, as originally designed, might be carried out notwithstanding the interruption to its prosecution which had been found necessary. For there was good reason to believe that the Afghan commander and his force, whose strength was estimated at about 5,000 men, were in the vicinity of Urgunde, about midway between McPherson at Karez and Baker in the Maidan Valley. If Muhammad John would be so complacent as to remain where he was until McPherson could reach him, then Robert's strategy would have a triumphant issue, and the Warduk general and his followers might be relegated to the category of negligible quantities. Orders were sent to McPherson to march as early as possible on the morning of the 11th, follow up the enemy who had been observed retiring toward the west and south, and endeavor to drive them down toward General Baker. He was further informed that the cavalry and horse artillery, which he had left at Ashar, would leave that village at 9 a.m. under the command of Brigadier General Massey, and would cross the Charda Valley by the Urgundu Road, on which he was directed to join them on his march. The specific instructions given to General Massey were as follows. To advance from Ashar by the road leading directly from the city of Kabul toward Urgundu and Guzni, the main Guzni road, to proceed cautiously and quietly feeling for the enemy, to communicate with General McPherson, and to act in conformity with that officer's movements, but on no account to commit himself to an action until General McPherson had engaged the enemy. McPherson marched at 8 a.m., moving in a southwesterly direction toward Ugunde by a direct track in the rear of the range of hills bounding the western edge of the Charda Valley. To the point at which it was probable that he and Massey should meet, he had considerably further to travel than had the latter from the Ashar camp, and McPherson's force consisted of infantry, while that of Massey was cavalry and horse artillery. Massey left Ashar at 9 a.m. in consideration of the shorter distance he had to traverse, and he headed for Kilakazi, a village near the foothills of the western ridge about four miles from Ashar as the crow flies. He did not comply with the letter of his instructions to follow the Guzni road because of the wide detour marching by it would have involved, but instead made his way straight across country. That he should have done this was unfortunate, since the time he thus gained threw him forward into a position involving danger in advance of any possible cooperation on the part of McPherson, who was still far away from the point of intended junction, while Massey was comparatively near it. 
Massey's force consisted of two squadrons, 9th Lancers, and a troop of 14th Bengal Lancers, escorting four horse artillery guns. He had detached a troop of 9th Lancers to endeavor to open communication with McPherson in compliance with his instructions. As he approached Kilikazi, Captain Gu, commanding the troop of 9th Lancers forming the advance guard, sent back word that the hills on either side of the Guzi Road, some distance beyond the village, were occupied by the enemy in considerable force. Massey, in his unsupported condition and destitute of any information as to McPherson's whereabouts, would have shown discretion by halting on receipt of this intelligence pending further developments. But he probably believed that the Afghans flanking the road were casual tribesmen from the adjacent villages who were unlikely to make any stand, and he determined to move on. What he presently saw gave him pause. A great mass of Afghans some 2,000 strong were forming across the Guzni Road. From the hills to the right and left, broad streams of armed men were pouring down the hill slopes and forming on the plain. The surprise was complete, the situation full of perplexity. That gathering, host in Massey's front, could be none other than Muhammad John's entire force. So far from being in retreat southward and westward, so far from waiting supinely about Urgunde until McPherson as per program should drive it on to the muzzles of Baker's Martinis, here it was inside our guard, in possession of the interior line, its front facing toward turbulent Kabul and depleted Sherper, with no obstruction in its path save this handful of lancers and these four guns. Massey's orders, it was true, were to act in conformity with McPherson's movements, and on no account to commit himself to an action until that officer had engaged the enemy. Yes, but could the framer of those orders have anticipated the possibility of such a position as that in which Massey now found himself? There was no McPherson within ken of the perplexed cavalrymen, nor the vaguest indication of his movements. The enemy had doubled on that stout and shrewd soldier. It was clear that for the moment he was not within striking distance of his foe, whether on flank or on rear. No course of action presented itself to Massey that was not fraught with grave contingencies. If he should keep to the letter of his orders, the Afghan host might be in Kabul in a couple of hours. Should he retire slowly, striving to retard the Afghan advance by his cannon fire and by the threatening demonstrations of his cavalry, the enemy might follow him up so vigorously as to be beyond McPherson's reach when that officer should make good his point in the direction of Urgunde. If, on the other hand, he should show a bold front in departing from his orders in the urgent crisis face-to-face -face with which he found himself, should strain every nerve to hold the Afghan masses in their present position, there was the possibility that, at whatever sacrifice to himself and his little force, he might save the situation and gain time for McPherson to come up and strike Muhammad John on flank and in rear. For better or for worse, Massey committed himself to the rasher enterprise and opened fire on the swiftly growing Afghan masses. The first range was held not sufficiently effective, and in the hope by closer fire of deterring the enemy from affecting the formation they were attempting, the guns were advanced to the shorter ranges of 2,500 and 2,000 yards. The shells did execution, but contrary to precedent, did not daunt the Afghans. They made good their formation under the shell fire. Muhammad John's force had been estimated of about 5,000 strong. According to Massey's estimate, it proved to be double that number. The array was well led. It never wavered, but came steadily on with waving banners and loud shouts. The guns had to be retired. They came into action again, but owing to the rapidity of the Afghan advance at shorter range than before. The carbine fire of 30 dismounted lancers had no appreciable effect. The outlook was already ominous when, at this moment, Sir Frederick Roberts came on the scene. 
As was his wont, he acted with decision. The action, it was clear to him, could not be maintained against odds so overwhelming and in grounds so unfavorable. He immediately ordered Massey to retire slowly, to search for a road by which the guns could be withdrawn, and to watch for an opportunity to execute a charge under cover of which the guns might be extricated. He dispatched an aide-de-camp in quest of McPherson, with an order directing that officer to wheel to his left into the Charta Valley and hurry to Massey's assistance. And he ordered General Hills to gallop to Sherper and warn General Hugo, who had charge in the cantonment, to be on the alert, and also to send out at speed a wing of the 72nd to the village of Deux-Mazon, in the throat of the gorge of the Kabul River, which the Highlanders were to hold to extremity. The enemy were coming on, the guns were in imminent danger, and the moment had come for the action of the cavalry. The gallant Cleland gave the word to his lancers and led them straight for the center of the Afghan line, the troop of Bengal lancers following in support. Go, away on the Afghan left, saw his chief charging, and he eagerly conformed, crushing in on the enemy's flank at the head of his troop. Self-sacrifice, the Germans hold the duty of cavalry, and there have been few forlorner hopes than the errand on which on this ill-starred day our 200 troops rode into the heart of 10,000 Afghans flushed with unwanted good fortune. Through the dust cloud of the charge were visible the flashes of the Afghan volleys and the sheen of the British lance heads as they came down to the engage. There was a short interval of suspense, the stour and bicker of the melee faintly heard, but invisible behind the bank of smoke and dust. Then, from out the cloud of battle, riderless horses came galloping back, followed by broken groups of troopers. Gallantly led home, the charge had failed. What other result could have been expected? Its career had been blocked by sheer weight of opposing numbers. Sixteen troopers had been killed, seven were wounded, two officers had been slain in the hand-to-hand strife. Cleland came out with a sword cut and a bullet wound. Captain Stuart Mackenzie had been crushed under his fallen horse, but distinguished himself greatly and brought the regiment out of action. As the dust settled, it was apparent that the charge had merely encouraged the enemy, who, as they steadily pressed on in good order, were waving their banners in triumph and brandishing their tulwars and knives. The fire from the Snyders and Enfields of their marksmen was well-directed and deliberate. While Cleland's broken troopers were being rallied, two guns were brought into action, protected in a measure by Go's troop and the detachment of Bengal lancers, which had not suffered much in the charge. But the Afghans came on so ardently that there was no alternative but prompt retreat. One gun had to be spiked and abandoned, Lieutenant Hardy of the horse artillery remaining by it until surrounded and killed. Some 500 yards further back, near the village of Bagwana, the three remaining guns stuck fast in a deep water course. At General Robert's instance, a second charge was attempted to give time for their extrication, but it made no head, so that the guns had to be abandoned, and the gunners and drivers with their teams accompanied the retirement of the cavalry. Some fugitives, both of cavalry and artillery, hurried to the shelter of the cantonment somewhat precipitately, but the great majority of Massey's people behaved well, rallying without hesitation and constituting the steady and soldierly little body with which Roberts, retiring on De Mazong, as slowly as possible to give time for the Highlanders from Sherper to reach that all-important point, strove to delay the Afghan advance. This, in a measure, was accomplished by the dismounted fire of the troopers, and the retirement was distinguished by the steady coolness displayed by Coe's men and Neville's Bengal lancers. De Mazong was reached, but no Highlanders had as yet reached that place. The carbines of the cavalrymen were promptly utilized from the cover the village afforded. 
but they cannot have availed to stay the Afghan rush. The carbines of the cavalrymen were promptly utilized from the cover the village afforded, but they cannot have availed to stay the Afghan rush. There was a short interval of extreme anxiety until the 200 men of the 72nd, Brownlow leading them, became visible advancing at the double through the gorge. It was literally touch and go who should reach the village first, the Highlanders or the Afghans, who were streaming toward it like ants on a hill. But the men on the 72nd swept in, and swarming to the house tops soon checked with their breech loaders the advancing tide. After half an hour of futile effort, the Afghans saw fit to abandon the attempt to force the gorge, and inclining to their right, they occupied the Takhti Shah summit. The slopes of the Shur Darwaza Heights and their villages in the southeastern section of the Charda Valley. McPherson, marching from the Sirk Kotul toward Urgande, had observed parties of Afghans crossing his front in the direction of the Charda Valley, and when the sound reached him of Massey's artillery fire, he wheeled to his left through a break in the hills opening into the Charda Valley and approached the scene of the discomfiture of Massey's forces. This he did at 12.30 p.m., four and a half hours after leaving the Cirque Kotol. As the length of his march was about 10 miles, it may be assumed that he encountered difficulties in the rugged track by which he moved, for McPherson was not the man to linger by the way when there was the prospect of a fight. Had it been possible for him to have marched two hours earlier than he did, and his orders were to march as early as possible, his doing so would have made all the difference in the world to Massey, and could scarcely have failed to change the face of the day. He did not discover the lost guns, but he struck the Afghan rear, which was speedily broken and dispersed by the 67th and 3rd Sikhs. McPherson's intention to spend the night at Kilakazi was changed by the receipt of an order from General Roberts calling him to Demazong, where he arrived about nightfall. Sir Frederick Roberts then returned to Sherpa for the defense of which General Hugo had made the best dispositions in his power and the slender garrison of which was to receive in the course of the night an invaluable accession in the shape of the guides, 900 strong, whom Jenkins had brought up by forced marches from Jogdaluk. The misfortunes of the day were in a measure retrieved by a well-timed, ready-witted, and gallant action on the part of that brilliant and lamented soldier, Colonel McGregor. A wing of the 72nd had been called out to hold the gorge of the Kabul River, but the Nanuche Pass, through which led the direct road from the scene of the combat to Sherper, remained open, and there was a time when the Afghan army was heading in its direction. McGregor had hurried to the open pass in time to rally about him a number of Massey's people, who had lost their officers and were making their way confusedly toward the refuge of Sherper. Remaining in possession of this important point until all danger was over, he noticed that the ground about Bangwana, where the guns had been abandoned, was not held by the enemy, and there seemed to him that the opportunity to recover them presented itself. Taking with him a detachment of lancers and artillerymen, he rode out and met with no molestation beyond a few shots from villagers. From McPherson's baggage guard, met as it crossed the valley toward Sherper, he requisitioned 60 infantrymen who entered and held Bangwana, and covered him and the gunners during the long and arduous struggle to extricate the guns from their lair in the deep and rugged watercourse. This was at length accomplished. Scratch teams were improvised, and the guns, which were uninjured although the ammunition boxes had been emptied, were brought into the cantonment to the general joy. End of section 5. Recording by Frank J. Los Angeles.